back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast, where each week, Movies by Minutes hosts will examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Alan Sanders. I'm your host, normally heard on the Wilder Ride podcast. And I'm the co-host of the Wilder Ride, Walt Murray. And Walt, we can at least get into the movie in minute two, which for this time frame, I mean, that's actually saying something. I was expecting to have three or four minutes of just nothing but credits, but uh, I guess with the film as long as it ended up being, uh, uh, you know, almost three hours, uh, it felt like maybe they chose to be a little more expeditious with the credits. We already talked yesterday. Uh, it is kind of an ensemble piece. It's a group project, and that also kind of helps putting a bunch of names, but they kind of went through the title credits pretty quickly. Here's my assumption. They sat down and said, look, at some point, two knuckleheads are going to go through this thing one minute at a time on something called a podcast. Those guys don't need five minutes of credits. Let's get into the movie. Let's give them something to talk about and let's move forward. So I yeah, can... because if you give them, you give them credits, they're going to talk for another hour every minute. <laughs> People have mentally checked out by the time they get to the story. Yeah, you do not need to subject the listeners to these two idiots. So it was really a mercy play on their part. Really, when you think about it, very forward thinking of this group. It really was. I, I really do appreciate them uh, doing that. They they knew the internet was coming. They knew podcasts were on the way. So that just really worked out <laughs> great for us. Well, it is great to be back here and, and great to be opening the fourth collaborative project of the Movies by Minutes podcast group and uh, getting a chance to really set the stage for this Academy Award winning film. I think this is the first... As far as a collaborative, yeah, this is as a collaborative project, a multi-Academy Award-winning film, and we are really looking at a piece of cinematic art. Um, and I know when they opened up the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The it's, it's not really the Hall of Fame. Like the Library of Congress uh, has these things that where you're inducted into the National Archives or the National Registry. Uh, when they started doing that, where they wanted to take collected uh, movies, uh, examples of maybe music and other and other art forms that were to be kept for uh, posterity's sake because of their cultural significance. This was one of the first movies that was inducted when they opened that up. They wanted this movie as a, as a piece of cultural history for the United States. Well, it makes sense. And I think you'd mentioned this in the, the last episode that you had never seen it. I was not really familiar with it at all. I had heard the name of the movie, but had never watched it or anything. And uh, so I'm really kind of blown away by what I was missing. So I can see why that movie would qualify for that distinction. Yeah, it's amazing how some movies get a lot of replay and they become a name, at least their their title becomes culturally aware for so many generations. And then there's some, like, I didn't even know the name of this movie when we started. It's somehow in my, all the World War II movies I saw growing up, all of the Turner classic television, everything just about trying to make sure that we don't lose the cinema of the past, for whatever reason. I remember reading the name across lists of all the Academy Award-winning films across history, but it kind of went in one ear and out the other. I never really thought much about it. Um, and I, I think it's actually kind of a shame because it is a movie that I think more people should visit given its subject material, dealing with the the reacclimation of of veterans, especially combat veterans, back into society after something as as, as monumentous as World War II. Well, and after watching this, I kind of think it's a better movie than some of the movies that we get to see on Turner Classics a lot. 
and uh, some of those movies that you look back in movie history and go, oh, yeah, that's the classic. That's the standard. I think this is better than a lot of them. And not to rip on those movies too much because a lot of them are good and all of them were really good in their time. But I I really kind of put this up in the pantheon of, um, you know, uh, 12 Angry Men and some of my other favorites now. Well, this was included in uh, back in 1998. The American Film Institute put out the top 100 greatest American movies, and it was included in that list. It was also recently included in the, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, it says the 1001 movies you absolutely must see before you die. And of course, it is in that list of movies. So it is considered culturally significant across other different areas as well, not just by uh, the, the National Archives and uh, the National Registry. You, a lot of people believe this is one of those movies that everyone should see at least once in their lifetime. I guess I need to start paying attention to those lists a little bit better. <laughs> hey, there's that shopping list I needed. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And really sit down. And, and I, I guess, too, as I get older, I, and I, I have to admit, getting involved in the movie by minute world, where you're really breaking movies down, you're looking at acting and the art of cinema a little bit more. Uh, mm-hmm. I've come to appreciate more and more what a good movie is and when all those elements really come together. And I feel like in this film, those elements do all come together. The writing, the acting, the cinematography, the direction, the art, it all comes together in this movie. Yeah. Um, I'll even give you one more. Uh, the American Film Institute, a lot of times we talk about the AFI or you go to AFI.com. But the American Film Institute in 2007 rank this as the number 37 in their list of greatest American movies of all time. I think that I could say that that's probably pretty good. I I think that's a pretty good place for it. Oh, you think? (laughs) Yeah, you know, well, these experts, you know. (laughs) Come on, Poindexter. Based on my. (laughs) (laughs) On my expertise. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'd put things in there like, uh, uh, you know, Tommy Boy. (laughs) (laughs) Tommy Boy. Yeah, I don't think that's going to make that list. Mm, that's hard to believe. So The Walt Murray list of what everyone has to see before they die. <laughs> hey, there's some good ones on there. Uh, you know, don't, don't count it off too fast. But yeah, probably this one wouldn't have been on there until now. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's dive into this minute. It does open up with remaining one, uh, one additional title card. We kind of roll over from uh, yesterday. We still have the, the leftover seconds of Samuel Goldwyn being, you know, the producer. And we roll into the director credit. It's directed by William Wyler. We did talk uh, a little bit about him yesterday, but uh, a handful of projects underneath his belt that might be worth calling out before we get into the to the actual start of the movie. Um, you're talking about the uh, the great movie, hit her first mate, right? No, no, no. That would that would be one of the earlier uh, learning as he goes kind of examples. Uh, oh, uh, dead end. Is that the one? No, no, but you're getting you're getting warmer. Okay, well, I'll throw out another couple that we may have heard of. Uh, small film, um, not well known. Ben Hur. Yeah, Ben Hur might be a big one. <laughs> might that might qualify? Uh, how about Roman yeah. Holiday? Yeah, I've heard that. Watched it. Seen it. Yeah, the very you know obscure actor Gregory Peck and uh, and Audrey Hepburn were in that one. Um, and then you know another one that. Uh, it, probably none of us have ever heard of the big country. That would be another directing credit. You know, he tried so hard to be better than John Ford. <laughs> he really, Actually, a lot of people really said, did. 
of that time frame that there were two directors that you would look at as being sort of like at the pinnacle of their craft. And it was John Ford and William Wyler. Uh, William Wyler would end up with three Academy Awards for Best Director, right behind John Ford with four of them. Um, he had been nominated multiple times for Oscars. In fact, I want to go through this list quickly. His first nomination, he didn't win, but he was nominated for Best Director in 1936 for Dodsworth, nominated again in 39 for Wuthering Heights, nominated again for Best Director, but did not win for The Letter in 1940. Nominated in 41. So here it is. 36, he skips two years. Then 39, 40, 41. Every year he's got a movie out. Mrs. Miniver is his first time he wins an Academy Award. This is 1942. It goes for a little bit of a break, four years, and he comes back to direct The Best Years of Our Lives, the movie we're, we're breaking down now, wins his second direct uh, Oscar for Best Director. And then he wins, uh, excuse me, then he's nominated in 49 for The Heiress. And then he uh, he's nominated for uh, 1951's Detective Story for Best Director. You mentioned Roman Holiday. He was nominated for Best Director, um, and it was nominated for Best Picture. Then we go on to Best Director uh, nominee for Friendly Persuasion in 56. Then he wins the Academy for, uh, for Ben-Hur, an Academy Award for Ben-Hur as Director in 1959. And he gets one more nomination in 65 for the movie The Collector. And he eventually was given the Irving G. Thalberg Award for a Lifetime Achievement in Cinematic Arts. Wow, man, that guy got really lucky in his career. He must have known what he was doing when putting a movie together. <laughs> I'm guessing so. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you, you look at a list like that, and there are, f there are a few people even to today in Hollywood who have done anything even close to that. I would say in terms of the scope and in terms of the number of nominations, it's probably somebody like a Steven Spielberg. It would have to be. Yep. It would have to be like a Spielberg or... Um, yeah, and, and probably not anybody, probably not anybody else you could name. Um, uh, what an amazing career! Yeah, just a, a stellar career in film. Um, just that run when he first wins, uh, and I don't know, you know, he had an earlier career, but when he got the nomination in thirty-seven for the nineteen thirty-six movie, it was in the it was the next year, obviously the Academy Awards, but in thirty-six for Dodsworth, he he skips a couple of years, but he goes. 39, 40, 41, and eventually wins the Oscar in 42, but four years in a row, every year, his name is being thought of as, wow, this guy's a really good director. He should he should get an award, and he finally gets it yeah, for his 1942 film, Mrs. Miniver. So just an, an amazing, amazing director behind this project. That's, that, and it shows. It shows throughout this movie what a great director they had. Yeah, and, and to balance this story and the multiple people and kind of going back and forth and really giving us a, a almost a, a view of Americana post-World War II and how it, just, just how life was in America. In fact, you just wonder, everybody keeps saying, you know, are our, are our, are our memories short or do we have short attention spans? And we're going to see here in this very first minute when we get into the uh, the characters on screen and we really start the movie, it's like some of these folks, the the businessmen, the folks traveling, they don't even want to, they, it doesn't even occur to them that they're like shoulder to shoulder with someone who helped save the world from evil. I know. And, and you and I, at the time of recording, it's the end, thankfully, of 2020. 
And one of the things that we've heard all year long has been because of the COVID uh, virus, I, I can't wait till things get back to normal. And I think there is something in a in the American mindset that we go through all these crazy things. You know, we go through World War One, World War Two, uh, you know, Korea, Vietnam. Uh, we go through the World Trade Center attacks. That there is this in our mind, in our collective mind, there's this watermark that we want everything to get back to, and you see that even here that. Like everybody's suit and tie. You don't see very many military people. You see people going about their regular lives. And there is that desire just to kind of get it back to how, you know, it should be whatever that ideal is in our mind. Right. It's like, okay, war's over. Uh, Back to business. Yes. Yep. Back to business. Back to life. Yeah. We're sitting here. Uh, the very first shot is actually kind of uh, almost an interior uh, crane shot. It's like right up. You can even get the ceiling in, but you're almost looking down in an airline uh, lobby. Uh, kind of wild to see how airlines were initially set up and the different waiting counters and you know people walking in and out of the lobby area. But it looks like it's about two o'clock in the afternoon based on the analog clock on the wall. Yes. And one of the cool things I thought, did you notice the carpet? Yeah. The uh, the lines everywhere, like the yeah, it's it's like it looks like a map of the U.S. with uh, or maybe a map of the world with um, flight lines. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. It's it's uh, it's the the North America. It looks like, and yeah, it's showing sort of like the hubs and where they're the different airlines uh, in in a fledgling kind of industry. Obviously, the airline industry has been around for. A couple of decades at this point, but still, when you think about it, uh, the whole idea of travel by air, uh, this was something that was not affordable to the everyday person. It was, uh, you know, the military would you would do a lot, obviously, but um, certainly uh, an interesting way to open the movie in the airplane or in the airline or airport. And what we don't even notice with all the hustle and bustle is our main character is actually at one of the counters where people are crossing in front of him. And we don't even notice him until he finally starts to walk through and come toward camera. Yeah, that is. And I think that's a great thing about that shot is you um, you get a sense of the fact that he is kind of the only military guy there. Mm -hmm. And life is just kind of going on for all these folks. They aren't really concerned about who he is or where he's come from. It's just a normal day. Yeah, nobody is going out of their way to shake his hand. There isn't a group of people around him. He's just, and, and you don't, I mean, you can tell when you know where to look, where he is. But honestly, even except for wearing a more military style, the, the short brim military hat of an officer, you don't even recognize that it's a military uniform until he turns toward camera. And you realize it's like, oh, okay, that's his traveling class A uniform. Uh, he's wearing his uh, medals on his on his uh, on his chest. He's got uh, a, a a bag slung over one shoulder, and his other larger bag was sort of just sitting in the in, almost in the middle of the shot. Which, of course, you're not allowed to do that in airports today, leaving your baggage unattended. <laughs> right. But you know, he then goes to it, picks it up, and uh, you can tell it's pretty heavy because he's almost like using his thigh as a way of kind of like helping to leverage it as he walks toward camera. Yeah, he's lugging it along. Mm -hmm. It's just that, yeah, big cumbersome thing. So. Now, I will tell you, you don't really catch his rank as well until it dissolves into a shot of where I, 
you're you're obviously at a ticket counter because from behind he's starting to talk to this woman he's leaning on the counter and he's going to try to buy a ticket but i can tell right off the bat it's us army he was part uh, he was a captain in the army and he's got his wings on so he was yep. some kind of a, a pilot or worked in the army air corps we have to remember there wasn't an air force at this point in time it was the army air corps right that was 1948 i think that the air force was when eventually formed. they broke off from the army and created just yeah. a dedicated air force i'm not sure the exact year if only we could look that up before we actually committed to our facts. I know. It wasn't until you said that till I was like, oh, yeah, we probably need to find out when the Air Force was formed. No, I did want to I, I wanted to mention that more than anything for a lot of folks that maybe uh, di- never realized that for the longest time we had the Navy and the Army. The Marines were a part of the Navy. And technically, to this day, they are still paid by the secretary of the Navy, uh, even though we think of them as a separate branch now. And the Air Force really grew out of the Army, which is where all of the uh, the pilots were trained. The Army had the Army Air Corps as part of its mission. Yeah, it had all the bombers and everything else. And I guess soon we'll get to look forward to Space Force breaking off. Uh, and we'll have uh, our guardians. Thing. That's right. Uh, so the U.S. Air Force became a separate branch in 1947. Oh, look at you. You were pretty close. 47. Yeah, I knew it was... In the 40s, um, but uh, yeah, it's pretty good. So, uh, but yes, he definitely would have been a part of that Army Air Corps, uh, whether he was a pilot or whatever. I, I guess to wear the wings, wouldn't he have to be a pilot? Well, I don't know if he's a pilot or he just was assigned to the Army Air Corps. We, we're going to find out in, in coming minutes that he was part of a bomber squadron and he said he was a bombardier. Now, right. I don't know if that means that he could also fly or or if he, his whole role was just to be uh, stationed or his role was to be in a plane, but um, I didn't uh, get the sense that uh, in in the movie here that he was a, a pilot. Yeah, I know the bombardiers took control of the plane and actually flew them until they dropped the bombs and then the pilots took back control, but I don't oh, maybe. know if okay, yeah, had to be a pilot to do that or not. I'm not sure. Um, we get the dialogue right in here as uh, the, you hear an announcement. Your attention, please. Announcing the departure of American Airlines Westbound Flight 9. Flight 9 now loading at gate 3 for immediate departure. Uh, when it does fade in and we do see, you know, uh, a much closer shot of him, it's from behind. The ticketing lady uh, is at the at her desk and, you know, she says to him, you're like, yes, yes, sir. And she's like, hey, have you got anything going to Boone City? And she goes, Boone City, well, we've got three scheduled daily flights, but there's no space right now. Would you care to make a reservation? Uh, and of course, he says yes and gives his name. And this is where we get our, one of our main characters, Derry. He says, D-E-R-R-Y, Fred, how long will it be? And she goes, oh, we could probably get you on flight 37 on the 19th. It's like, the 19th? <laughs> I can't wait that long. I just got back from overseas. I want to get home. Before we go too much further than that, I want to ask you, Boone City. Did it bother you that there is no, like, there's no Boone City, like, the recognizable name? No, I, I, the, that's the one thing about this movie that does actually bother me, is why not just say Chicago or Detroit or wherever, wherever they want to set the movie, why do they have to make up something? I don't know, but what we can thank is our internet friend, the, the, the Google engine, uh, that actually novelist McKinley Cantor modeled Boone City over the city of uh, off the city of Cincinnati. So 
Uh, think of it as Cincinnati, but they didn't want to, for whatever reason, call out the name. And just so they called it Boone City. But for my ear, seeing it for the first time, I was like, are they like, I can't help but hear like Boone City, Boondocks, like in the middle of nowhere. I'm like, well, that feels really weird. Like, why wouldn't they just give it a, a, a bigger presence, a recognized city name? The only thing I could think of is that they wanted it to be kind of an everyman movie. Yeah. Instead of saying, oh, well, you know, that guy's a Midwesterner, and so he's going to be this way, or he's from New York, so we know what we get from New Yorkers, or whatever. Uh, or, you know, here's a West Coaster. Uh, that would be the only thing that I could think of, that they were just saying, we want a guy who is every American. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, you know what I couldn't figure out in this scene? I have no idea what day it is today. So when she goes, well, you're not going to be able to fly out to the 19th. If it wasn't for his reaction, I can't wait that long. Like, did you not have your ticket before you went to the airlines? They went, the the army just dropped you off and said, all right, here's your, uh, you know, here's your orders or here's, you know, uh, a a credit that you can use. Go get your, get your airline ticket to home or, hey, your service is done. We'll, t- we'll see you later. Bye. And they dropped him off and he's just got to make his own arrangements. It just felt weird. That happened to a friend of mine. He was, um, he was stationed in Asia and they said, okay, you know, there's a flight out of here today, but there's not one two days from now when you're scheduled to go. So if you want to get out this week, you got to go today. So he threw all his stuff in a bag and went, lands in San Francisco, doesn't have a connecting flight home. So he had to go to the USO and work with them and try to get a flight and finally got it worked out. But he just said, I'm going to hit American soil and then figure it out from there. Wow. See, right off the bat, it's it's kind of it's messing with my preconceived notion of what I thought World War II veterans coming home, how they would have been treated. I just feel like. She's not working to get him on a plane now, trying to figure is there a way somebody might get bumped or try to get him priority. She's going to make him wait, and he doesn't have a ticket already. He's trying to get his own accommodations to get home from overseas. He, it, it really jarred my, my, like I said, preconceived notions of what I thought it would have been like. Have you ever read the book A Band of Brothers? I've seen the miniseries on HBO. Oh, uh- uh, and the miniseries is awesome, but the book, it will blow you away. I mean, the book is so amazing. Well, one of the things at the end of the book was them getting home. And, you know, here are the guys that went and stormed Hitler's eagle's nest. You know, these guys have done everything. Um, all of them had purple hearts. All of them had, you know, silver stars and everything else. And they threw them on a bomber once they got to England and f- the bomber just flew back and they, it was kind of like we were saying with the guy coming home from Japan, they just got home, you know, they got on American soil and then they took him to a train station and said, okay, you know, here's your money for a train ticket or whatever. And they had to get home from there. So they, there really was not a whole lot of logistical planning to get everybody home. It was just kind of, we got to get him. That was the first thing it, it, I could not. And then still, even you saying that, even that's the reality. It's amazing how I've got a mythology in my head of what I thought the vast majority of veterans coming home from World War II would have been, you know, hey, we've got your, you know, we've got your gold star ticket. We're going to take you home. We're going to have make sure that you get to your destination. Thank you for your service. And and, and 
it obviously wasn't as organized as in my head I expected it to be. Well, think about this. There were, I, I, if I if I remember this number right, which I probably don't, there were close to a million men in the Pacific serving at the end of World War II. That seems a little high, but I, I guess when you go all the services, um, you know, guys who are ship mechanics and aircraft mechanics and, uh, you know, all the things that everybody did through the course of the war, and you got to get all those guys home, you're still getting guys home from Europe. How do you do that? <laughs> you know, you that is a, a crazy task. And uh, for the guys flying home from Europe or coming home from Europe, a lot of them got on ships. You know, they had a lot of ships bringing them back. And then a lot of them flew home on on planes like this guy did. You know, they'd fly bombers back and carry as many guys as they could. And then they would fly those bombers out to like Arizona and they buried them in the desert. So because they just didn't know what else to do with them. And then a lot of the ships were getting repurposed as fast as they could could get them, you know, to cruise ships or oil tankers or whatever they were going to be used for next. So um, even that, you know, they'd get them back to where they were going and they weren't going back for another load of guys. They were going, you know, going to get repurposed for whatever it is their next job was. Wow. I would I would not have wanted to be the guy in charge of that logistical nightmare. You know, when it comes to, you know, a lot of times we have this, in, even today in Hollywood, we talk about, well, okay, that's a movie. They kind of Hollywoodized it. But then every now and then you get a picture and you go, wow, that's really real. It feels legitimate. It's not the Hollywood version of a movie. It's it's. It, it's almost like a documentary. And I feel like that's what I'm getting here, that I'm getting the reality to shake my notions of what I thought happened. Right. Well, yeah, it, because we look a lot of times we see the ticker tape parades and, and all that. But, you know, everybody didn't like the war didn't end on Tuesday and everybody was home Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you had hundreds of thousands of men and all that equipment. I mean. It, it was insane what was out there that had all been, you know, cranked up for the war effort. And then now you got to get everybody home. And that last uh, episode or two of Band of Brothers is interesting because all those guys were thinking they were headed to the, the Japanese theater, but they were uh, basically kind of standing around not knowing what to do. And a lot of guys getting drunk and in fights and all kinds of trouble and, and all that before they started ramping them up to, to go fight in the Pacific. So it was, uh, it was kind of a mess. Well, we're going to get to the moment here in this minute that I, I mentioned to you before we even recorded, it kind of ticked me off and you said it did the same. So here's this war veteran, a captain, an officer who's just trying to get home. And he's basically being told, well, there's a waiting list. It's going to take a, I guess a, a few days, maybe, maybe longer than that. I can't, I don't know. I don't know why we don't know the date, but I got the sense of the reaction that it wasn't going to be just tomorrow or the day after. It was going to be days from now. You get a guy, a, a, a kind of an older but kind of a burly business-looking guy with his hat and jacket and coat and tie, and steps up and is like, uh, "My secretary made arrangements to have my tickets here at the airport. My name is Gibbons, George H. Gibbons." Didn't even care. He's interrupting a conversation with a, a World War II vet. Just kind of. Hey, by the way, since uh, you're basically explaining to uh, the war boy here that uh, he, he there's no there's no flights available, uh, my ticket should be waiting for me. Not yeah, you know the Hollywood version would be like, oh well, you know what? 
you could take my plate or, you know, I was heading there, but why don't you, I was expecting that. And it was amazing how it was like, no, no, I want my tickets. Here you go. Bye-bye. I mean, yeah, just, sure. And this guy definitely does not look like he's been in the military no. recently. <laughs> and he doesn't even acknowledge this guy until, I mean, like he's not even there to him. The only guy he acknowledges is the gentleman who's there carrying his bag and his golf clubs. Right. The red cap, just the guy that's there to help load him up. Yeah. And, and so he acknowledges the girl that can get him his ticket and that's it. And, you know, I've been on some of those flights where they've said, hey, we've got a military person who needs to be in wherever. Uh, would anybody be willing to give up their seats? And I was kind of thinking about it. If they said, you know, we'll fly out tomorrow. Okay, yeah, sure. Throw me in a Holiday Inn Express and I'll fly out tomorrow. But if they said, you'll go next Thursday, <laughs> I might have a different attitude towards that and say, eh, I'm not holding out till next Thursday for you. It just, it. So. this movie, I will tell you, I was knocked on my heels from this very opening scene because nothing was the way I would have expected it to be if, if we were trying to, and I, and I know this was the reality. And that's what's the wild thing for me is, oh my God, I have such a, a a mythology in my head that doesn't fit the reality of what happened. Yeah, yeah. Now, when you transitioned out of the military, I know that you had not been in combat, but I'm sure there had to be a little bit of a um, transition period for you going from military life to civilian life. You know, the only thing for me... It, 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 this is so different because everything was planned. And, you know, when I, when I when I was going out, they were like, okay, we're going to get you to the airport. We've got a shuttle there. Uh, we want you to go to the USO club. We're going to make sure that you're taken care of. Wait for them to call you. You're on this particular ticket. You're going to meet up with a bunch of people that are going to the same place. We went to basic training. Then we went to, I mean, everything was planned. The, the logistics of managing me from point A to point Z I mean, I didn't have to think, and and and, it, and that's what another thing that's blowing me away. And I guess that's something where the military, when it became much more of an all volunteer force, and you know, grew to what it was versus being in a combat mode, it's being more in a uh, a protection mode, national defense mode. Really figured out that they had to have an entire logistics wing, that they had to have things to help make it easier for the soldiers to get to where they were going, and. I just was accustomed to that. I had no idea that it was going to be like this. So I getting a, getting back to civilian life for me wasn't as hard because I didn't have to serve in any kind of a combat theater. Um, and I and my dad was career military, so I kind of grew up already in a household that was a little more regimented and hearing that kind of terminology and expecting to act in a certain way and conduct myself a certain way by kind of that military bearing. So I didn't really have this the, the transition out that we see in this movie. But of course, the huge difference from what I did versus what these guys did. Well, and I guess I kind of also have my cynical views of government where the guy in private business comes up, his secretary has worked everything out, his ticket's ready, his bags get put on the thing, his golf clubs are ready to go. The government employee walks up, nobody has told them that he was coming. His ticket's not ready. <laughs> they, they don't know what to do with him. They can work him in a week from Tuesday. <laughs> And then, you you know, she goes, oh, well, you could wander over here to where all these other military people are. And uh, that's the best they can do for you. So I guess cynically, I'm like, yeah, that's pretty much government wow. to a T. And, you know, and, and even to the extent that the, when the businessman looks over, you think he's looking at him. He's basically saying, uh, 
hey, make way for the guy that's got to load my luggage up and get weighed. I mean, <laughs> right. And, 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 and our, our main character here, you know, Fred Derry has to just take a couple of steps back and realize, oh, oh okay, I guess I'll let this guy cut in line, cut me off from the conversation, get his tickets, go to his destination. I'll, I'll see if there's something more after he gets out of the way. Maybe I can work something out, but it kind of the minute ends there with watching the red cap start yeah. loading the suitcase. And as you said, the golf clubs onto the scale to be weighed before going on the plane. Well, and it doesn't just end with that. The weird, the, I guess the thing that kind of pushed me over the edge with this businessman is that Fred takes a step back so that the guy can put this right. guy's bag. Yeah, I just said that. I'm like thing. that. He looks he, at him and he has to he step back away. Pushed aside. Yeah. He, here's a guy who just fought to free the world from tyranny. Get out of the way so my golf clubs can get on right. the scale. Right. And I mean, what an ass pat. I got to tell you, I'm just sitting there like flabbergasted and I'm only one minute into the actual, like seeing characters on screen only two minutes into this movie. And I'm like, I've never seen anything like this. I, I had no idea that this is what I was going to be watching. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I, I've said on other podcasts, I come from a military family. My dad was in Vietnam. My uncles were uh, in the Navy and another uncle in the National Guard. Um, my dad was in law enforcement. I've grown up with a, a healthy respect for uh, the the women and men who serve our country in uniform. And you know, when I walk up to a veteran who's wearing a U.S. Army hat or whatever, and I say, thank you for your service, I really mean it. I really do appreciate what they've done for our country. And this is, so this really grates against the grain for yeah. me. No, it does. It. I knew I was in for something different within two minutes of this movie. And I think it actually, not only did it tick me off, but it, it, it grabbed me because I was like, surely they don't treat them like this through the whole movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in some ways I kind of feel sorry for the actor. I'm kind of hoping the actor was like, oh, this is really uncomfortable <laughs> for me. <laughs> because, you know, I hope that's how he was. Um, you, you assume that that's how he was, but, uh, but he even plays the part well. He, he, you know, has kind of a straight back and very forceful and walks his way right up and, doesn't take any gruff from anybody. You know, he, he plays that uh, successful business tycoon kind of part yeah. really well. What I do like about our our military character here, you know, uh, Captain Derry, he doesn't decide to make a big thing out of it. He, he maintains his military bearing, his yeah. professionalism, that even if, he, even if his mind is going, you know, you know WTF, Right. He's not necessarily showing it beyond just being perplexed that he can't get his own ticket. Yeah. And I, I was kind of thinking about what could be going through his head and it, he really could be like, well, I mean, whatever, you know, I'm not going to get my ticket and this guy's got one to being, well, you know, I, I think on the other end, some of the combat veterans I know are like, well, I'm not in a plane that's on fire. Nobody's shooting at me. <laughs> uh, nothing's caught in the rotor blades. So, uh, you know, whatever. You know, everything's cool. I'll just step out of the way, let this guy get his business done, and then I'll, I'll do what I need to do. Well, that's going to bring us to the end of what's going on in this minute of the film. 
before we wrap up and, and kind of give the uh, the sign off for today, was there anything else that you wanted to talk about in this minute? Uh, no, no. I, I think this is a great opening minute for the movie and I'm looking forward to getting to the next one. All right. Well, before we uh, officially sign out, and of course, we'll continue this scene into the next episode. Walt, we are members of the Wilder Ride podcast. Very quickly, let's uh, remind the audience if they're enjoying our discussion of this movie, where they could go to hear just a little bit more of us. You're going to find us as the Wilder Ride on just about any podcatcher out there that we know of. Uh, You can also find us at our website, which is thewilderride.com. On there, we've got a list of all our past guests. We've got a link to all of our episodes and a whole bevy of other other things, including our biographies. If you're going, who are these two morons and how did they get to be so crazy (laughs) Uh, and so uh, lack understanding of movies, uh, you can go find our biographies there and learn everything you want to know about us. Uh, also, if you uh, if you are so inclined, you can find us on Patreon, patreon.com uh, slash The Wilder Ride. We've got some content out there that's normally behind a paywall. Any day now, we're going to be putting it back there, but we just figured during the COVID nightmare, uh, we'd open that up for people so they could have some um, opportunity to hear a little bit more of what we've done with some other movies. And I want to let you know if you want to learn a little bit more about the folks behind this particular project or you just want to talk about the movie yourself, you're enjoying it, you, it's one of your favorites, you can't believe there's two people opening a podcast season with having never seen this movie before, well, check out Butch's Place, the Best Years of Our Lives Listeners Cafe on Facebook, and you can also follow the cast on The Best Minutes at Twitter. That is at The Best Minutes for the Twitter account. Don't forget to like the uh, the episodes, in, and, and you can also rate, review, and share very quick and easy ways to kind of help spread the word, spread the audience, and help us with marketing without having to spend a single dime. You can hear the Best Minutes podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Play, and visit the website, thebestminutes.com. And come on back for another episode of the Best Minutes podcast looking at the Academy Award-winning movie, The Best Years of Our Lives, right here on your podcatcher of choice. Kept that one a little more reasonable. Uh, yeah, somewhat. <laughs> Still can't believe how they treat you. I, I'm, I, I'm the, just didn't even think twice about interrupting a hero from World War II. Well, and much less just a human being. Oh, look how important I am. Uh, my secretary called in. Take a time about golf clubs. I've got Uh, Yeah, Uh, you just want to hit him in the face. Hey, Joe, you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon. Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.